Well, in, uh, I, I know that we've been in chapter 11 for about a decade now, and uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely time for us to move on to this next section in chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But uh, we have, there's a couple of reasons why we're going to settle once again for one more session in a particular part of chapter 11, this first section, uh, verses 2 through 16. One reason is because next Sunday we're having Connection Sunday, so we won't be meeting together. And so I'd rather start fresh after that Sunday with a brand new section, so it's kind of a practical motivation. But the other motivation is that if you recall, a number of weeks ago I said that we would, we would circle back to some of these uh, things that sort of emerge out of this particular passage of chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, that are uh, problematic in some way, or that are difficult, or that are not super clear. And, and I never got back to the angels. Did you guys remember that? I never, I never got back to the angels in verse 10. So we're going to try to, try to address uh, some of that a little bit uh, today, and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap on verses 2 through 16. And then Sunday after next, we'll uh, pick up our study starting in verse 17 and the discussion that Paul has there on the Lord's Supper. So... That's kind of the, the, the chart, uh, the course I'd like to chart for us over the next few weeks. Um, as I said, I, I've been kind of waiting a little bit and lingering a little bit on getting to this particular verse, primarily because it's not a clear verse at all. Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's not crystal clear what uh, is in view and what this reference, because of the angels, means in light of the broader context that the Apostle Paul has been walking through in the preceding verses. Charles Hodge, just to give you a little bit of framework for some of the difficulty of this passage, Charles Hodge, who was a graduate of Princeton College in 1815, uh, and then a graduate of Princeton Seminary in 1819, who was ordained as a minister in 1821, uh, Hodge was appointed to the faculty of Princeton Theological Seminary in 1822, serving as a professor of Oriental and Biblical Literature with a focus on Biblical languages, hermeneutics, Biblical criticism, and a study of Old Testament texts. And then from 1826 to 1828, Hodge traveled to Europe and studied there with some of the brightest theological minds in all of Europe at that time. Uh, he then began to focus his studies on theology and Biblical interpretation with the additional concentration of Semitic and cognate languages. Um, His studies in Europe made him one of the leading Hebrewists, experts in Hebrew, teaching in an American theological institution in the early 19th century. doesn't end there. He eventually turned his attention to the New Testament texts, and from 1840 to 1854... He served as professor of exegetical and didactic theology at Princeton Seminary. During his half-century tenure at Princeton, Hodge held several chairs, but is probably best remembered for the reputation he established as professor of systematic theology. He was a prolific author, serving for many years as the editor of the Seminary Journal, which became the leading theological journal of the 19th century under his leadership. He also published several commentaries one on Romans, one on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and one on Ephesians, as well as a three-volume magnum opus on systematic theology. And this is what Charles Hodge says about this verse. There is scarcely a passage in the New Testament which has so much 
taxed and taxed the learning and ingenuity of commentators as this. After all that has been written, it remains just as obscure as ever. End quote. One of my favorite commentaries on 1 Corinthians that I've used extensively throughout this study was written by a couple of notable contemporary uh, theologians and scholars, New Testament scholars, Roy Ciampa and Brian Rosner. Their opening statement about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10 is this. This verse is fraught with exegetical difficulties. And the significance of the angels is unclear. Fantastic. Gordon Fee, who wrote a very large and very reputable commentary, he passed away in 2022, but it's certainly a contemporary work uh, on 1 Corinthians. He says this, By all counts, this is one of the truly difficult texts in this letter. It needs to be noted at the outset that our difficulties are directly related to the ad hoc character of the passage. The solution probably lies with what the Corinthians themselves have communicated to Paul, Indeed, the key words, quote, authority and, quote, angels, have very likely come from them in some way. Our problem is that at this point, we are left on the outside looking in with these difficult words as our only clues. Hence, we must forever be content to, quote, look through a glass darkly, end quote, and learn what we can in the midst of admitting how little we know. So all that to say, the reason why I waited... Uh, is because I just needed a little more time to really figure out how to explain this with crystal clarity like these simpletons weren't able to do. <laughs> it's a challenging little verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, as you might imagine. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that, that getting at sort of a specific, definitive meaning, thoroughgoing meaning, is probably not possible on this side of heaven. Uh, and so there is, in, in, in sort of infused into any lengthy discussion of it, uh, elements of sort of educated guessing, a little bit of possible, you know, sort of trying to tie some things together. Um, but we certainly can't be overly dogmatic, okay? So just know going in that this is not going to be an exercise in just, you know, rampant speculation, uh, we are going to try to work our way towards something that, that could, could be a, a helpful way to view this particular passage. But the bottom line is that it's, it's difficult and it's not clear. And as I've read from some of these uh, other examples of commentators and theologians, uh, it's, it's nothing that we're going to land on with complete certainty. Now, to be fair... This verse, and let me just read the, let me read the section to, to us. Let's just start in verse 7. For a man ought not to, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's sort of the context of our, of our discussion as we look at, in particular, uh, verse 10 here. But to be fair about this, uh, the, the difficulty of this particular verse doesn't lie exclusively with this reference because of the angels. It, it's a little bit bigger than that, and I don't want to spend a lot of time 
you know, going into a lot of depth on all the, the difficulties of the, the text itself um, surrounding some of the, the grammar and syntax and whatnot, but at least a few little reference points so that we can uh, think carefully through it. Because, as I've said before, and I think I, I think I emphasized this extensively last time we were together, that when you get to a, a text like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, that deals so explicitly with men and women and their roles and responsibilities, the distinctiveness of them, and why there is distinction there, uh, when you get to a text like that, it becomes a point or a, a, a fulcrum point of, of fairly heated disagreement depending upon which camp you are, are coming from in your view of the roles of men and women, particularly in the life of the church. And we've talked about that extensively. And what I, I sort of emphasized last time we were together is invariably where you find yourself in these discussions and in these debates is not so much a disagreement at its most fundamental level on how men and women are to function as men and women or how men and women are to function in their unique created, created design roles or how they are to relate to one another in, in marriage or in the life of the church. But what you come to invariably is what is your view of biblical interpretation? What is your view of Scripture's authority here versus there. I don't know if you remember that, that kind of emphasis last time, but that's, that's invariably where you end up. So this, this kind of debate can get sort of, we can get lost in the weeds because of contemporary sensibilities around equality and authoritarian patriarchy and all these kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is, is that what we want to really be careful that we are grappling with and that we are dealing with carefully is our understanding of sound principles of biblical interpretation and submitting to what Scripture says because we understand what it means by what it says. And so we just obey. And so that's, that's what we come to here. This particular verse, believe it or not, is a linchpin verse that has been raised up by those who would take what we would have called a more egalitarian view of male-female dynamics and relationships, as opposed to a complementarian view, a more egalitarian view, meaning that equal, same, no distinctions, that kind of thing. Um, this has become a, a, a point of argumentation. This particular verse has been, become a part of point of argumentation for them as well. And I want to kind of address that a little bit too, because in my estimation, it again highlights this tendency toward reimagining what Scripture is actually saying in order to justify a particular position. So, as I said, the, the, the challenge in this passage is not just this seemingly obscure reference to angels because of the angels, like, what does that mean? But it begins, even before you get to that phrase, with just the, the language and sort of the syntax, the ordering of, of the phrases in the verse. Um, basically, what you see here, and if, if, you, if, you, if you look at verse 10, uh, maybe a more literal sort of transliteration of verse 10 from the Greek would be something like this. Because of this, or for this reason, a wife or a woman, depending upon context and what your translation 
uh, inclination is there because it's the same word for wife and woman. It gets translated differently based upon context. Because of this or for this reason, we'll use wife because that's what's in the ESV and that's our, our text that we read from. Uh, because of this or for this reason, a wife ought to have authority or ought to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, if you have an ESV, you'll notice that the ESV reading is, that, is this. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So you'll notice that the translators of the ESV uh, translation of the, of the scriptures insert this phrase, a symbol of. Those words are not in the original language. This word authority ought to have authority on her head or exousia, power on her head, is what's actually in the text. And so there's debate about what this is referencing, what this opening phrase of of because of this or for this reason, is that looking back to previous verses? Is it looking ahead to the verses coming next? There's, there's debate about what, how, how you really unpack the meaning of this. And interestingly enough, this particular uh, sort of structure and, and use of Greek words read from a certain perspective seems to in some way kind of uh, undermine what Paul has been saying previously. So, so the, the, the idea here is that, is that there, there is this, that, that, that the wife or a woman ought to have authority on her head, ought to have power in and of herself is sort of the idea. Authority in and of herself. But the whole argumentation prior to that is this breakdown of authority and submission in the Godhead and between men and women that is distinct and is part of the design, uh, the creative design and the created order of things that God intended in creation. And it's complementary and uh, complementary, complementary in nature. Uh, the, the, these, the, this, this seems to kind of contradict that in some way, this, this sort of investing in some kind of authority. Some would argue that if you're, if you're looking ahead to chapters 12, 13, and 14, uh, those who are more inclined to be, uh, interpret the scriptures and, and those particular chapters as um, clear indications that what is normative in the life of the church are signs and wonders and, and speaking in tongues, that this is to be normative practice in the life of worship in the church. So words of wisdom, words of knowledge, interpretation of tongue, tongues, speaking, interpretation of tongues, prophetic utterances, these kinds of things they would see this as uh, an, an indication of the Apostle Paul's uh, endorsement or really even sort of declaration of that kind of gifting. Most importantly, it's a gifting that resides with women as much as it resides with, with men. So they would move in that direction with it. But in this whole egalitarian, complementarian sort of debate, there are several commentators who have an egalitarian view who would argue that the more accurate translation of this this phrase that a wife ought to have authority or power on her head, they would say that a more accurate translation of this should be something like this. A woman ought to have freedom over her head, or a woman ought to be free to wear a veil or not, as she wishes. 
So the, the interpretive sort of framework here literally is that that particular verse, verse 10, is the core of Paul's thesis in the entire section. That, that, that really what the Apostle Paul is advocating for here is the women in Corinth to have complete freedom to wear a veil or not wear a veil. Now, I, if you've been here, you know that that's not how we've walked through this passage. So what do we do with that? Because there is this seeming investment of some kind of authority or some nature of authority, some use of this term authority that has to be sort of dealt with textually in, 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 the, in the verse. So they would, they would argue that, that, that sent, and this is the other part of it, these, these writers and commentators that would say that, that this verse, because of its structure, and because of the word usage there, really is advocating for a woman's right or freedom over her own head so that she can choose whether she wears a veil or not. Those that would argue from that perspective would also say that because, and when I say they would also say this, like I've read them, they've said it. This is what they've said. They would say, that, that since this is somewhat obscure on the face of it, as I've already indicated by all these other commentators, that, that there's a bit of, of freedom or liberty to sort of try to reconstruct the historical context and, and provide sort of a new reading of the entire section. I read, I read one article that used that kind of language over and over again. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole new way to read the entire section. If you start with the assumption that verse 10 is really Paul's primary thesis in the entire section, and his primary thesis has to do not with principles of authority and submission between men and women in the life of the church that is also reflected in the Godhead with Christ and God that we've talked about previously, and that is also reflected in or flows out of, I should say, the created order of how God made us, that they would say that this is really about a woman's rights and freedoms. And so what they do is they say that everything that comes before this is rhetorical device. That the Apostle Paul is basically adopting in the first nine verses there, the first eight verses there from two through, through eight, two, two, two through nine, He's adopting the Corinthian premises to basically point out their inconsistencies, which Paul does use that kind of rhetorical device. He even uses it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll, quote, he'll basically quote the slogans of the Corinthians. He's done that before. You know, we, we, have, we have become rich. We have become kings. He would say, you know, he, he, he employs sort of the assumptions or the, the positions, if you will, of the Corinthians. And then he goes about to sort of dismantle their faulty assumptions. What they would argue is that, but, but notice the difference, though. When the Apostle Paul does that as a rhetorical device, granting them an assumption that they have and then coming back, and dismantling that erroneous assumption and then providing what is true and what is truly to be understood about you know, who God is or how he's made us or what he calls us to and that kind of thing. 
that when he does that, he does that like with one phrase, like one slogan. Here you have like several verses of didactic instruction that this kind of view that says that that's just him using that as a rhetorical device, they would say that the Apostle Paul is going into an extensive rhetorical you know, uh, device here, providing didactic instruction after didactic instruction, precept after precept about head coverings and not head coverings and why and what and shaved heads and all that kind of thing. And all of that is just him at length adopting the assumptions of the Corinthians so that he can then come back around in verse 10 and correct it all in one fell swoop. That's the idea. I would just say that's probably not a good hermeneutical approach. I would say that there's a sense there where you can almost see the straining to bring to the text a certain position and then try to actually engage in some form of, you know, interpretive process to arrive at a conclusion that agrees with your predisposed view. That's what can happen here. So the reason why I bring that up on the front end of this, before we even talk about the angels, is that you can see how this gets into how do we interpret things. So here's an interpretive principle. When you come across verses passages that are on the face of them rather unclear, rather obscure, and, and possibly rather unclear or, um, an obs- or obscure because they legitimately are that way. In other words, it's not just, a, it's not just because we, we aren't as well studied as we might eventually become. Or it's not just because we just haven't you know, read more broadly in the entire letter yet, and so we're still trying to put it together. But no, like, like this particular verse, people who have been studying 1 Corinthians for their whole life and written on it at length are going, this is an obscure verse, that kind of verse. When you come across those kinds of verses, because the, this was a letter written to actual believers in the first century in a particular locale in Corinth, right? I mean, it's, it's got, it's got a context that is real, it's historical, there are customs, there are practices. We also know from 1 Corinthians that there was communication, there was correspondence that was going on between the Corinthians and Paul that we don't have access to. So the point is, is when you come to an obscure verse like this, where our, our exposure to other sort of contextual material, other sort of supporting information that kind of sheds light on it within the same letter or something like that, you never sort of run a marathon on obscurity. You allow everything else around it, and even broadly outside of the context of that particular letter or book, that is crystal clear to be the interpretive rubric that you use to understand better what might be going on in these obscure verses. You don't take what is obscure and run with it and then form an entirely different interpretive framework for a section that that sits in. Follow what I'm saying? And that's that's what happens with this kind of thing. It's like we bring, they call it eisegesis. We bring our own ideas, our own conclusions to a text, and we sort of read them into the text, and then we interpret out from that to arrive at the conclusion that we already had before we started reading the text. Rather than coming to the text and saying, 
I submit, it's authoritative, and even if it clashes hard with my preconceived notions, it's right and I'm wrong and I got I got a course correct. And that's what happens particularly when you get into some of these what you might call cultural sticky wickets that you know that rise up out of scripture that scripture speaks to at length and very explicitly. And so that's what happens here. So Again, I don't think it's uh, uh, reasonable, and I also don't think it fits the framework of 1 Corinthians, nor any of, other Paul, any of other, Paul's other sort of writing style that you see in his New Testament epistles, that he would take you know, eight verses and have that be just, I'm just, uh, just kidding. I mean, I just, I, I'm really just kind of you know, letting you know how much I understand your assumptions so that then I can just in one verse you know, wipe it away. No, what he does is he makes a brief statement that, that you know, concisely captures an erroneous assumption, and then he uses lengthy instruction to both correct that assumption, but explain more fully the doctrine and theology behind what is true that, that does correct that assumption. That's what you see in the Apostle Paul's writings, not, not, not the reverse. So... As you can see from the ESV translation in particular, other translations as well, uh, the translators do insert an interpretive assumption here. They insert the, the, the phrase, a symbol of authority. Again, the reading of it is, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, not just a wife ought to have authority on her head. A symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And the reason why the ESV translators and others as well do that is because of the broader interpretive context. Like that's, that's what the Apostle Paul has been leaning on and moving toward through this entire section. And so in order to sort of make it a little more clear and readable and hopefully understandable and accessible to an English reader, they add that phrase to it. To, to, to draw from what the Apostle Paul has been teaching up to this point. He has been talking explicitly about principles of authority and submission, of headship and submission. That's explicitly what he's been talking about. So either what he has been talking about is not to be applied or understood as his main point, and verse 10 with some new interpretation is, or he wants everyone to understand these principles of authority and submission as part of God's created design and for his good purpose and pleasure and for human flourishing writ large. He's intended that. And so we need to interpret verse 10 accordingly. And so that's why the ESV translators add that in. Because that does coincide. You can go back and read Hodge, Calvin. You can read commentators that go way, way back. And they would... They would uh, they would already, before the ESV translation came out, long before the ESV translation came out, they would see this as to be understood as a symbol of authority. That he's talking about this head covering as a symbol. And so that's just what the intent of that particular verse is. So anyway, it's just, it's just in the flow of, of sound biblical interpretation for centuries that, that that's, that's why that was inserted in that particular text. Now, admittedly, as I said, the construction is a little bit challenging, but it doesn't warrant a reimagining of the entire interpretive framework. Okay? It's challenging, and so we try to go to what's more clear to get light, not to ourselves, to then create what we think makes most sense to us. 
it doesn't mean that we need to reimagine this entire section and, and, in which this particular obscure verse actually resides. Now, what about the angels? What about them? All right. Um, obviously, I don't, I, don't, I don't have time to go into, and I'm not prepared for it either, to go into a lengthy discussion of angelology. There's a lot of information, a lot of content in the Old Testament and the New Testament about angels. Interestingly enough, who, who okay, I need, I, need, I need to take a little bit of a poll. Who in here remembers Frank Peretti and the This Present Darkness series? There you go, yeah. Uh, I, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this. I made the mistake, and it was just sort of, you know, it was almost a known mistake. I made the mistake the other day of referring to that as literature. Uh, We were making kind of a joke about it, but uh, if you recall, basically what that book series does is it, it, it's fiction, okay, first of all. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously fiction. It's just interesting how people really got into it and started kind of thinking like, you know, there was a demon around every corner, and you know, it's, if you if you smelled sulfur, then that meant there was demonic activity. You guys remember that? I mean, like the smell of sulfur. Meant, yeah, I don't know if you remember all that. But anyway, um, it really it was it was imaginatively written, and so and it was written intended to be written from a sort of a you know a biblical perspective, if you will. But it was fiction. And the thing that's key about that particular series that's also reflective of Scripture is that even though there are a lot of reference points throughout Scripture to angels, it is shrouded in mystery. These are spirit beings. They can appear as men. They do appear as men. You might be entertaining angels unawares, right? I mean, they appeared at the tomb of Jesus. I mean, these are are spirit beings that can appear as men, but, but they are part of a world that is unseen. And if you think about the instances in Scripture, even though they are, there are numerous references to angelic appearances throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, those appearances or those encounters are very, very brief. Like They, are, they reflect brief moments in time. So if you cast those actual, excuse me, occurrences in, the, in sort of the flow of everything else that's going on in history and in people's real lives, these are little blips. These are little sort of, you know, touch points in the flow of historical narrative and in the flow of biblical historical narrative. And, and so in the same way that we, are, we, we like to sort of speculate and, and imagine we can be inclined to over-speculate like, what actually might be going on. But the fact of the matter is, is that we, we have a lot of information that we can ascertain certain attributes and characteristics and functions that are consistent in all these different passages of angels and what their purpose is and, and some of their activities and that kind of thing. We can't extrapolate beyond what is written to kind of come up with an entire broad profile of like what you know, what Gabriel and Michael are doing right now. We don't know, okay? So there's a certain sort of humility and a certain sort of, I, I guess, self-control that needs to be uh, engaged in around this. And as I said before, because of the way that this passage is constructed, I mean, it sits there with a level of obscurity that's just, you just got to ha- kind of accept and recognize. 
And so pretty much most of what you're going to do to try to understand what might be going on here, what the Apostle Paul might have intended, uh, what the Spirit of God really might have intended uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, we should say, uh, you have to kind of, you know, bring together a number of different things to try to come up with a, what, what might be a helpful way to understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach here, what he's trying to relate to, what the point he's trying to make. There are obviously no shortage of opinions about what is going on here. And when you find a, a, you know, an obscure kind of reference like this, it is in some ways kind of fair game for people to say, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that, or it could be this, or it could be that, Okay. What's helpful in all of those speculative notions about it is when people say, but we can't be certain. That's all you need to hear, right? Could be this, could be that, but we can't be certain. It's when you say it is this or it is that, without that caveat, is when you run into problems. So a lot of these opinions, a lot of these reference points, you'll find in commentaries where they'll just list out some of the more common. It's just you know a whole list of different assumptions of what might be going on here. Uh, one of the assumptions that is, it's, it's, a, it's an, um, a fair exegetical and textual assumption, is that these, this is a reference not to angels at all. The, the word for angel is messenger. And even in scripture, uh, angelos in, in, the, in the Greek, I can't remember the Hebrew word for angel. Maybe somebody might know it, but I can't remember what the Hebrew word is for it. But, but it's used, it's, it's actually intended and translated as messenger, and it's not a reference to angel throughout Scripture. Context is what sort of determines how that is to be understood or translated, because it is the word for messenger. Uh, And so some would say that the reference point here, this is not a reference to angelic beings at all, to spirit angelic beings at all. It is actually a reference to messengers who are men, possibly the presiding officers of the church, or some would say it's it's pagans. It's sort of pagan spies who are, who are attending this, the worship services of the church so that they can sort of report these activities to imperial authorities. I don't know if you guys uh, remember much history from this era, but believers were, were persecuted by various emperors, various Roman emperors, and oftentimes they were acu- persecuted and accused of things that sort of flowed out of complete um, uh, misrepresentations of their practices, one of which we'll gonna, we're going to talk about next time we're, we're together for a teaching time is the Lord's Supper. That there were those in, in um, the early centuries of the church where believers were accused by pagans in the empire, they were accused of being cannibals. This is my body, which is given for you, take and eat. This is my blood, take and drink. And so that the persecutions would often be stimulated, or I should say at least the flames of it would be fanned based upon completely, complete misrepresentations of actual Christian practice that would take place in the context of Christian worship in a church. So some would say that this is possibly a reference to these, you might call them you know, pagan spies who are you know, who are concerned about this new sect of, of the Christians and, and, you know, they're trying to report in. Or maybe, maybe you know, representatives from the Roman Empire are saying, go, go and attend these services and let's find out what's going on here. You know, we, we've had this, these, these Jews that would create these uprisings in our cities and this seems like some kind of other sect, tangent sect of the Jewish people. You like that kind of thing, sort of a, a conspiratorial kind of uh, infiltration into the church. 
I don't think that that's a good uh, way to look at it. I think that that's a pretty pretty far stretch, but that is something that that could be uh, in view here, and I'll, I'll talk about why why that is in a little bit. Some would uh, say that maybe this is a reference to not not holy angels, but demons or evil angels. You might say, even possibly sort of a reference to a kind of evil angel or demonic angel like. Uh, is referenced uh, according to the sort of Hebrew interpretation of, of Genesis chapter 6-2. Those sons of God that saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as they, any that they chose. So that this could be uh, a reference to evil angels and that the Apostle Paul is wanting there to be some form of protection that doesn't demonstrate or show that women are vulnerable to that kind of attack. Um, The Pillar New Testament commentary says this, Some think that Paul may be concerned about the women's vulnerability to angelic attention based upon the common Jewish understanding that Genesis 6-2 referred to angels who mated with women. Okay, Uh, Some would see this as a reference to um, Paul's concern about provoking angelic zeal for the glory of God. That, you know, a reference point would be Acts 12, where an angel killed Herod Agrippa for accepting praise as though he was a god, rather than giving glory to God. And so angels, the idea goes, can, in, in their zeal for the glory of God, can be provoked to sort of a judgment-like action when they see something taking place in the realm of men that is diminishing the glory of God. And of course, as we've talked about in this passage, this is preeminent in Paul's mind, the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. The context is worship of the local church in which that is the intended purpose of that time together. And so this could be you know, a reference to you know, the Apostle Paul uh, being mindful of and calling attention to the, the zeal for the glory of God that the angels have and that the actions of a woman, for example, throwing off the symbol of her understanding of her role in God's created design and it bringing shame to her head, which ultimately brings shame to the head, Christ himself, that that would be a provocation to God's holy angels and their zeal for the glory of God. Could be that, but that's not clear either in the text. It could be a reference to just simply a reference to angels in their innate submissiveness to the divine order. So in other words, uh, the, the Apostle Paul is simply saying, consider the angels. The angels are powerful, holy beings created by God for His holy purposes. And they are beings that are in constant mode of worship and bringing glory to God. And even even though that is their nature, they are also at the same time characterized by utter and complete submissiveness to the will of God, no matter what it is. John MacArthur in his commentary kind of describes it like this. The basic meaning of angels is messenger. Paul here is speaking of the holy angels. God's ministering angels, whose supreme characteristic is total and immediate obedience to God. 
Throughout Scripture, God's holy angels are shown as creatures of great power, but it is always derived power and submissive power. Satan and the other angels who followed him were thrown out of heaven for the very reason that they sought to use their power to their own selfish purposes and glory rather than to God's. The holy angels, on the other hand, are the supreme example of proper creaturely subordination. Hebrews 1.4 through 2.18 focuses on Christ's superiority to the angels and their willing subservience to him. So it's possible that this reference to angels is simply Paul uh, referencing the nature of angels and their power and their, their abilities to enact even God's judgment at times, but yet their submissiveness in all things to the will of God. There are a number of other, you know, kind of ideas that are out there. What, what are we really talking about? What, what's really going on here? Uh, the challenge in some of this is, you know, you have to kind of ask the question, what would the Corinthians understand? Now, what, would, what would the Corinthians sort of think about this phrase? Uh, some of these ideas rely somewhat or to some extent on Jewish tradition, on Jewish teaching, on Jewish instruction, on Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, and that kind of thing. And so there's this question, well, uh, was there time and opportunity for the Corinthians to have been taught in some of these things? We don't know. I mean, the Apostle Paul spent 18 months with them. There's a lot of correspondence, possibly. Would that have been his point of emphasis? Seems unlikely that he would have gone down that kind of path, but we don't know. We just don't know. But in trying to kind of grapple with this question, what would the Corinthians possibly understand? Or, or what are some pointers we can go to, to to maybe get at answering that question? Uh, what we can know for sure is that the Apostle Paul taught the Corinthians previously about angels. Uh, and that there are a few points within the context of this letter, outside of this particular verse. And even more broadly, within the corpus of apostolic teaching to the churches by the Apostle Paul that might kind of shed some light on what the Corinthians would have known, uh, knowledge that they would have been exposed to about angels. So, for example, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, within the context of this very letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9, just as a very brief Uh, kind of summation of of where we are in the letter, the Apostle Paul, as he is doing pretty much throughout the entire letter to one degree or another, he is is contending with or dealing with the Corinthians' arrogance and pride. They're puffed up. They're they're measuring themselves by themselves. And they're dealing with uh, um, factions and, and arguments and quarrels among them. And the Apostle Paul is basically holding up himself and Apollos and saying, why would you do that? We, we don't even see ourselves that way. That, that's not even who we are as apostles called by God as your spiritual fathers. And so here in chapter 4, verses 6 to 9, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So again, he's dealing with their their arrogance and their pride. And he says, already you have all you want. This is one of those slogans. This is one of those 
sort of, you know, him assuming their presupposition. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And then here's the corrective. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So in this text, the Apostle Paul gives an indication that we also find in other places in the Scriptures that the angels marvel at the work of God among men. There there are aspects to, to God's work of redemption, to God's using of His people, to, to, to the ways in which God is working out His redemptive plan amongst the, the, the world of men that, that the angels just marvel at. You, you see another example of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Not the, not the same kind of angle, but just this, this idea of the angels just going... Wow, what, what, what is this? But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, Peter says this. And again, this is within the corpus of apostolic doctrine and teaching that was circulating in the churches. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So you have Old Testament prophets that are, by the Spirit of God, speaking about things that are coming, that relate to the coming Savior, and they, they didn't know fully what this was going to look like, and, but yet they were writing about it. And then in verse 12, "...it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." Think of it this way. Angels are not recipients of God's manifold and magnificent grace. Angels do not experience salvation or redemption, and yet they are witnesses to it. They are messengers of it. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. There were were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And then a host of angels appeared and gave glory to God in the highest. I mean, the angels were like fully involved in this whole enterprise, and yet they weren't participants in it, and they marveled at it. It was a stunning thing for the angels. And and so so you have this sense in Scripture that the, the workings of God and man that the angels are observant of, they are marveling at. I'm sure there's, they're perplexed by it to one degree or another. I mean, these are not omniscient creatures, right? So, so you have these examples. In Ephesians chapter 3, as it relates to the church, this, this wonder of wonders, the church where this body of people who were in and of themselves rebels against a holy and perfect God, how can that be, first of all? 
Angels who we see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, who are at the, at the very throne of God, taking in every ounce of His glory, His shining, magnificent glory, and are worshiping with eyes covered and with feet covered, and they're singing night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And yet you have men who reject this God and who rebel against this God. How could this possibly be? And then wonder of wonders, He redeems these rebels. He, he exhibits to them His manifold love and grace in a way that angels can't possibly comprehend or, or have experienced in the same way. And then he, he calls them together and he unites them together into a body, his church. Wonder of wonders. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Of this gospel I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What we can ascertain from these and other places in Scripture is that the work of God among men, particularly in His grace in redeeming them from their utterly and completely foolish rebel state, overcoming their rebellion in His grace and calling them to Himself, giving them eyes to see what they couldn't see before, giving them a will to respond in faith, in which prior they had no faith and they were dead in their sins and trespasses, And then calling them together into this thing that he calls the actual body of Christ. The spiritual body of Christ on earth. With a mission that has been a mystery that's been hidden for all these ages. It's a wonder to the angels. We can just know that. It's a a wonder of wonder to the angels. They they marveled at this. And then you take it to sort of a, a, a further back in time view. Angels were also present at creation. And they marveled at that. So before you even get to the work of God in redeeming man from his sinful state and then calling him together into the body, his church, and marveling at all that, they were there at creation and were marveling at that. You see this in Job, for example, in Job chapter 38. This is actually God's rebuke of Job because Job was getting a little bit too big for his britches and his suffering. But, he said, but, but the, the Lord is speaking to Job and in verse 4 of Job chapter 38 he says, Where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And when you read the creation account and you see the various days of creation, and then, and then God gets to the last day of creation where He creates man and woman in His own image. Can you imagine? We can only imagine the marvel and wonder. Like what, what this song that the angels were singing as they shouted for joy at God's crowning creation of man and woman in His own image. 
So we have these, these examples of, of the angels looking upon the affairs of men and God's interaction and, and redemptive work with them, and they marvel and they wonder. And it, it intersects with, with life in the body of Christ and, and redemption and individual salvation, and it goes all the way back to creation. And so then you tie it back to the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you see the Apostle Paul teaching these Corinthians about the wonder of God's created design for men and women, and how it is to be a reflection of Himself to the world, and how men and women function in the life of the local church. And, and for men and or women to cast that off, as not applying to them, or not important, or taking on the cloak of of contemporary culture as the guiding principle in how we should adorn ourselves or how we should function publicly. In light of all that, it's not unreasonable to conclude that angels can be adversely affected and even provoked by that kind of action, particularly in the context of the local church and worship. Especially when God's uniquely redeemed creatures, the benefactors of God's astounding grace, act in ways, particularly within the context of worship, that bring dishonor to the God who made them male and female. Now again, that's just my take. I don't know. But you can at least see that, that there, are, there are sensitivities to the angels and how they experience what... God is doing, even in His persistent love and grace, in spite of our foibles and failures and unwillingness to honor Him in everything, and in particular in this realm of men and women and their roles and responsibilities in the life of the church. Well, it's 1032. There we go. All right. Let me pray. 